Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show... How can countries defend against digital threats to security? We have two kinds of problems in the United States with AI. The first is not enough AI, and the second is too much AI. And far from making you slicker, could city living dull the wits? So the more gritty a country was in its cities, the more negative impact the cities had on performance. But first, despite two millennia of research, there is still a lot that scientists don't know about the sun. Now beginning the pitch over maneuver, body rate response look good. This week, a rocket blasted off from Cape Canaveral in Florida, carrying Solar Orbiter, the European space probe designed to solve a few of the mysteries of our nearest star. And vehicles now passing Mach 1, Atlas 5 is now supersonic. The probe is now on a two-year journey towards the sun. Its mission is to capture imagery from the sun's poles, something that no spacecraft has managed before, and to do it from close up. Tim Cross is the Economist technology editor. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Tim, what exactly is the aim of the mission? Well, so it's to look at the sun, which is probably the most studied astronomical object in the sky. Hot topic. A hot topic, exactly. But it's one that's sort of quite hard to examine, just partly because it, it is so bright. And what Solar Orbiter is going to do is take a, a sort of new view of the sun. So it's going to be put into quite an unusual orbit where all of the planets in the solar system basically orbit in the same plane. So if you imagine, if you see the solar system from side on, all the planets orbit the sun in sort of the same disk. And what this spacecraft is going to do is go at an orbit that will be at an angle to that disk, and that will allow it to fly over the sun's poles, because the sun, like the Earth, has a north and south pole. And that's something that no one's ever done before. We've had spacecraft that have been in similar orbits, but they haven't had imaging equipment on them. Solar Orbiter is going to be in an orbit like that, and it will have a whole suite of imaging equipment to look at the sun in different wavelengths and examine different things about it. Okay, so that sounds incredibly close, and it's very hot. So how is it doing it? Well, this is one of the the big engineering challenges, is you have to deal with this very unfriendly environment. So even in Earth orbit, you need to design spacecraft carefully because when you're out of the protection of the atmosphere, you know, sunlight is pretty roasting hot stuff. But here, the light will be, I think it's about 13 times more intense than it is in Earth orbit. So the spacecraft is basically built around a massive heat shield, which is sort of a sandwich of all these advanced composite materials. And then interestingly, it's layered on the outer edge with bone charcoal, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's charcoal you make by heating up bone. So it's not vegan friendly then? Probably not, no. But this is the same stuff that, for instance, is used as black pigment in thousand-year-old cave art from the Neanderthals and stuff. It turns out it's got excellent thermal properties, so they're coating the heat shield in it. You have to build all the electronics to survive huge amounts of radiation. And the heat shield has 
what are effectively little windows inside it that will allow these specially designed cameras to sort of peek directly at the sun without being burned out. And there's an interesting contrast because there's another solar probe that launched in 2018. This is a NASA one called Parker Solar Probe. And that's even closer again. So that's something like 7 million kilometers away. That's actually inside the corona. And the two missions are kind of complementary because Parker is even closer still, but it's so close that all of its instruments just have to cower permanently behind its heat shield. And it's not actually possible for anything to look at the sun. Even a camera will just be fried. So all that Parker can do is sort of measure the local environment around itself. It can't look directly at the sun. Whereas Solar Orbiter, it's further away, but it can look directly at the sun. And the missions are kind of designed to work to work in tandem. And what do we hope to learn? Well, so the science goals are, are sort of quite broad. But what really gets the solar physicists excited is the ability to look in quite a lot of detail at the sun's magnetic field. So the Earth has a magnetic field with a north and a south pole, and it's a fairly sort of neat thing. The sun's is a sort of roiling mess of, of churning spaghetti. How do we know this? You can see it to some extent from Earth. If you do uh, observations in certain wavelengths of light, you can see certainly the effect of the magnetic field on the plasma that makes up the sun. But, you know, you're fundamentally limited because you you just aren't that close. You're 93 million kilometers away. But this thing will orbit at about 42 million kilometers, which is much closer. In fact, it's, it's closer than Mercury, which is the innermost planet. So it's going to give you much more sort of detailed observations. And there's then a whole series of questions to do with the sun that we sort of understand, but not in a great amount of detail. So for one thing, the core of the sun, unsurprisingly, is the hottest bit, 15 million degrees, something like that. The surface, the photosphere, is maybe more like five and a half, six thousand degrees. But then there's this thing called the corona. And when there's a solar eclipse, the corona is a sort of glowy spectral bit of the sun you can see around, around the, the edge. The penumbra around it. Yeah. And the corona, weirdly, is much, much hotter than the surface. So that's back up at a million degrees again. And, you know, we have some theories as to why that might be, but no one's really sure uh, which one is correct. Okay. And so are there any practical applications of this? Well, partly, you know, solar physicists just want to know sort of more about the sun. But I guess the most direct impact it might have is a better understanding of, of what we call solar weather. So there's this thing called the solar wind, which it's a stream of charged particles that comes off the sun all the time, about 1.5 million tons of matter a second. And it just it zooms out into the solar system. And in fact, it defines a sort of great big bubble in which the solar system exists separate from the sort of medium that's in, in interstellar space. And there are variations in that. So, you know, when things called solar flares, which are sort of sudden transient increases in brightness, and we can't predict them either. We can't predict them, but they have effects, particularly in Earth orbit. So uh, they can pose health risks to astronauts because they get an extra dose of radiation. They can fry satellite electronics if you don't design them carefully. They can puff up the atmosphere, which means if you're running satellites in sort of lowish orbits, the amount of drag on your satellite increases and the orbit starts to decay. And then even more dramatic, you get these things called coronal mass ejections, which are you know huge burps of plasma that the sun kind of fires out every now and then. And if one of them hits the Earth, it interacts with our own magnetic field, and it can cause all kinds of problems even on the ground. So there was a famous one, a massive one in 1859, which fried the telegraph networks across America and Europe because it induced these huge currents in the telegraph wires. There was another one in 1989, which ended up causing blackouts in parts of Canada for the same reason. And the more we rely on this kind of high technology, in a way, the more vulnerable we are. And so lots of countries would like some warning, some advance warning that these things are coming. There's this whole sort of nascent scientific field of solar weather, which is trying to watch out for these things, predict them, learn more about how they work. This is so interesting. So when will we get some data back? 
Well, so the probe, it's just launched. It's going to spend about two years getting itself into this special orbit. And then it'll start transmitting useful science data from, I think, the end of 2021. And at the moment, the plan is for it to run for seven years. But all of these probes are sort of over-engineered, so you can just extend that and extend that and extend that on. I love it. I'm going to be a solar weatherman. It's going to be bright today and hot. Pack your Factor 5000 sunblock. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Tim. Thanks, Ken. You can read more on solar probes in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And you can also subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And tell them Ken sent you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to Babbage from The Economist. Next, the digital revolution has transformed the threats that nations face. They're no longer just physical threats, like other countries' armies and spies. Now, it's also about virtual ones, social media disinformation, AI deepfake videos, and hacking election equipment remotely. So countries have had to adapt how they can defend against these new dangers. We have never before been at the cusp of so many game-changing technologies that are dramatically affecting global economics, political culture, and global politics. Dr. Amy Zegert is a fellow at the Hoover Institution and a professor of political economy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. She advises American officials on intelligence, homeland security, and cybersecurity. Just to name a few of them, Artificial intelligence, or AI, transforming the type of work that people do. We think about nanotechnology, biotechnology, quantum computing, which could, if it proceeds, actually undermine encryption, so the security of our communications on the internet, for example. It's not one particular technology. It's the fact that we are facing so many different technologies at the same time. It's really unprecedented in human history. Now, do countries have the right tools to combat those threats? Unfortunately, I think the answer is no. And if you take AI, for example, I often say that we have two kinds of problems in the United States with AI. The first is not enough AI, and the second is too much AI. So we have this sort of paradoxical situation. Let me give you an example. We now are facing just a deluge of information. If you're thinking about intelligence agencies and their mission, it's really to sort through information to generate insights so policymakers can make better decisions. Estimates are now that the amount of data on Earth is doubling every 24 months. So to put that into perspective, two years from now, if we were going to have a conversation, there would be more information on the planet than there had been from the time of human history, the dawn of human history, to the present. So intelligence agencies have to make sense of this information, but they don't have enough AI tools to help sort through this incredible volume of information. They're slow to adopt things from the private sector, for example. So what are we going to do about this? Well, 
there are several different things that we need to do. The first is, and I'm talking from the U.S. perspective, that we need to do a much better job at harnessing innovation from the private sector and bringing it into government. Whether that's using AI to help medical breakthroughs uh, and funding the right kinds of technologies, or whether it's helping intelligence agencies better understand threats over the horizon. We have to have a more seamless integration of private sector innovation into the public sector. The second thing that needs to happen is we need to develop a much more tech-savvy workforce. So technology is here, and it's going to be here for forever, and yet we don't have the STEM education, we don't have the kind of training of the workforce to advance economic and geopolitical interests in the world. So it's a human capital problem. And then the third thing that we need to do is we need to have a considered strategy for how to harness these tools and how to use them, including the ethical considerations behind their use, particularly with respect to autonomy and artificial intelligence. We lack a strategic vision about how to use technology in this emerging era. Now, you've called for the creation of an entirely new intelligence agency around this theme. Tell me more. Yes, I have. And the reason why is that if you think about where is information going these days, more and more critical information is open source. In other words, it's available to the public. It's not classified. It's not secret. It's there for everybody to see and use. Think about the information we can get from Google Earth. Think about the information we can get from Twitter. So in the raid to get Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, for example, that raid ended up being live tweeted by a local Pakistani resident who heard weird noises in the middle of the night that turned out to be the helicopters landing in Abbottabad. So the implications for operational security of military operations are pretty astounding. We've also seen that some of the best intelligence that we can get has come from open source information. So when the Russians invaded Ukraine, the best intelligence didn't come from stealing a document from a prime minister's safe or intercepting a phone call. It was Russian troops who posted pictures of themselves on social media with highway signs in the background. This is the new world in which we live. And so the countries that harness this open source world faster and better will have an advantage. And so that's why we need a separate organization dedicated to open source. You know, in the intelligence world, secrets are considered first-class citizens, and open source data is usually considered a second-class citizen. And so to get that attention that open source deserves, it needs to have its own agency. So what does the American intelligence community think of this idea? I'm sure they're welcoming a new brother with open arms. <laughs> well, you know, it changes hard in the intelligence community, but I think there is a growing realization that the intelligence playing field is leveling globally, and not necessarily to the advantage of the United States. So there's a recognition that something has to be done. But as you indicate with your question, cultural and structural change in any organization is an uphill battle. And that's certainly going to be true of open source in the intelligence community. You also argue that the intelligence community needs to develop deeper and stronger ties with American technology companies. How would that happen? Well, I think the crux of the divide is a lack of trust and connectivity, human connectivity between uh, what I call the suits and the hoodies. So the folks in Washington and the tech entrepreneurs here in Silicon Valley, where I, where I live and work. And part of the challenge is that this divide between the suits and the hoodies is really a convergence of three different divides in one. The first divide is between the protectors and the protected. 
So the military lives in its own world and tech entrepreneurs live in their own world. And there's data about this, right? If you look at an average street in America right after World War II, seven out of 10 houses on that street would have had someone who served. If you did that same exercise today, only two houses on that street out of 10 would have had someone who served in the military. So you have communities that are living entirely in different worlds, which is why you see each side saying, how can anyone possibly think that way? On the one hand, you have folks in the Pentagon coming out here to Silicon Valley saying, how can you not be patriotic? How can you not be responsible tech companies in signing up to work for the Pentagon? On the other hand, you have tech companies saying, how can you not take our moral reservations seriously? How can you not think about the fact that we have global shareholders and we have fiduciary obligations to them? So each side is sort of talking past the other. That's the first divide. The second element of the divide is a training divide. If you look in Washington, a vast majority of lawmakers are lawyers by training. There is a single engineer in the entire Senate Armed Services Committee, but there are 17 lawyers out of 25 members of that committee. So you have lawyers who don't understand technology. On the other hand, you have technologists in Silicon Valley who don't understand geopolitics. And then the third divide, and perhaps the toughest divide, is generational. So in Washington, power runs vertically. If you've had 30 years of experience, that makes you more powerful. In Silicon Valley, power runs horizontally. It's all about the wonderkins, the 20-somethings, and their friends. You know, I often point out to my friends in the Pentagon that Steve Jobs was 21 when he started Apple, Bill Gates dropped out his junior year of college to start Microsoft, and Larry Page and Sergey Brin were old men at the ripe age of 25 when they started Google. So in Washington, you think college interns should be lucky to do more than get the coffee. But here in Silicon Valley, college age interns are developing technologies that are changing the world. And so that generational divide is often very hard to bridge. That's fascinating. Amy Ziegert, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And finally, since the ancient Greek storyteller Aesop first told his fable of the simple country mouse and the sophisticated town mouse, urbanites have given rural folk a bad rap. But a new study has found that far from making you slicker, city living can dull the wits, at least when it comes to finding one's way in the world. So we've wondered before whether the environment you grew up in might shape your cognitive skills. And one of the key ones is being able to navigate how you find your way around. Hugo Spears is a professor of neuroscience at University College London, where his team have been investigating why some people are so much better at navigating than others. And cities in rural landscapes are quite different. You know, if you're growing up in a city, uh, you'll have good GPS access and you can probably you know, plot routes through the streets. In rural settings, you might not be able to use technology quite to the same degree, or you might have to go much longer distances, think a bit differently about the environment. And because of those differences, we wondered if they impacted people's actual navigation ability. And that's indeed what we found in this new study we've run. So tell me about this study. How do you test something like that? Yeah, I should, should start by just highlighting that the work we've done, um, we've released on a preprint, so it's available for anyone to have a look at, but it's still waiting full rigorous peer review. So what we did in 2016 was set up where, with Deutsche Telekom and Alzheimer's Research UK, an app for the App Store that it, where you downloaded a video game, it tested your navigation ability, how good you were at navigating, by simulating a, a virtual world in which the, the players had to find their way through it. There was once a boy who lived by the sea. His father was a brave explorer. 
Play Sea Hero Quest, the world's first mobile game where anyone can help scientists fight dementia. And we could score every single person who played on how well they navigated, and we could ask them lots of questions such as, did you grow up in a city or outside a city? We were very fortunate due to the amount of investment and effort in that study to get 3.9 million people take part. And of that, just under half a million of them told us about their, their background, whether they grew up in a city or in rural settings. So we were able to look across the populations in 38 different countries to see whether growing up in a city or outside a city had any benefit. Now, why do you think that there is this difference? I put this down to what seems the most likely, the hypothesis we're forming, is that it's to do with cities just, you're able to use a, um, a different sort of system for navigating. There's just, you have to find your way through the streets, you kind of look it up, whereas in rural settings, you're having to go much longer, you're maybe more diverse landscapes, it's making more demands on your ability to map space. That's the hypothesis I'd like to be true, but there are, of course, other alternatives which we lay out in the paper. And lay out some of those alternatives right now for us. Yeah, one of the first ones we worried about speaking to other experts might be that if you grow up in a, a rural setting, you might just get better access to education, that there's a lot of poverty in cities, so people just don't get the same levels of education. And that was something we were concerned about. So in our experiment, we were also able to ask people, how much education did you get? And what we were able to find with the research is that that didn't factor into this. Isn't, there is an effect of education, but it's independent of cities and rural or outside city effects. So don't think it's education, but there are many other factors that might affect these patterns. But we don't, you know, that many of those we'll have to find out in some follow-up research. Now, you also saw variations between countries. What was going on there? Yeah, that was a really fascinating part of the research. So Antoine Coutreau, who's the first author on the paper, when he first analysed the data, he was able to find this pattern of variation in the different countries. And for example, the United States really stood out as having the biggest effect, a negative impact of cities on, on skill. If we think about the that way around, a sort of rural being a sort of baseline and the cities as, a, as a, a dampening your skills, then it looked like the USA had the biggest dampening effect. But it varied across different countries and we were scratching our heads to think about why. And a very plausible answer, we thought, was maybe it's to do with the grittiness of the cities. We're very aware that the US has some very, very gritty cities. And we looked at some of the other countries that are where there's very little effect, like the Czech Republic and Romania, places like that are very, very irregular cities. They're very old European cities. And we thought maybe that might factor into this. So Antoine very cleverly was able to use a toolbox developed by a chap called Jeff Boeing, who allowed us to analyse how wiggly all the streets are in 380 cities around the world in these different countries. So that meant uh, we could then quantify how gritty a country's cities are. And that then, we found, explained to some extent this impact in negative cities on navigation performance. So the more gritty a country was in its cities, the more negative impact the cities had on performance. Now, previous research that you contributed to on London taxi drivers who commit to knowing the knowledge, the streets of London, that those drivers have an enlarged hippocampus, that they actually are able to memorize a sort of internal GPS better. How does this new finding dovetail with that previous finding? Mm, so it's a very interesting question because London, uh, not just London, but the UK kind of stands out as bucking a trend where the cities have a more negative impact on navigation ability than we would have expected based on the worldwide patterns. So that seems that London taxi drivers are 
again, bucking a trend in, the, in that they actually are very, very good at navigating despite spending all that time inside a city. And taxi drivers in London really are very unusual. They spend about four years training to memorize something like 85,000 street names and how they're positioned. It's a very unusual thing to do. And then they spend years trying to get through an exam, uh, which they have to pass to get a badge to, to work as a driver. So they are a very, very interesting group of people. My group are currently studying them to find out a lot more about how they do that and indeed how they use their brain when they're recalling these different routes. So I presume your next study is going to be on why London black cab drivers are great at video games? Uh, we'll, we will test that. We'll have a look at that. We're going to give them, put them through their, their paces on video games and all sorts of challenges. So we're really looking forward to testing London taxi drivers. Hugo Spears, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. While you're with us, please be sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen so that more people can discover our show and listen to it as well. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, this is The Economist. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.